Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. I'd like to begin this introduction with the following headline from IndieWire. Ten films directed by female filmmakers you can't miss this summer season. On that list is Leave No Trace, the work of acclaimed director Deborah Granick, my guest today. It tells the story of a father and his teenage daughter who live off the grid in a nature reserve outside Portland, Oregon. Much more about the movie coming up. This is Deborah's first narrative feature since 2010's powerful Winter's Bone, which she directed and co-wrote and which launched the career of Jennifer Lawrence. The film was nominated for four Oscars, Best Picture, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actor, and Best Adapted Screenplay. Deborah's first feature-length film, Down to the Bone, was awarded Best Director Prize at the 2004 Sundance Film Festival. Actually, it's the expanded story of Snake Feed, one of the shorts she made while studying for her MFA at NYU's Tisch School of the Arts. It's based on an original screenplay written by Deborah and her creative partner, Anne Rossellini. Deborah got her undergrad degree from Brandeis University. She majored in politics, but also became interested in documentary film, media, and feminism. While in Boston, Deborah took classes at Mass College of Art's studio for interrelated media. She shot and produced educational programs related to workplace health and safety for local trade unions. That was followed by the opportunity to work on several long-form documentaries by Boston-based filmmakers. Deborah, welcome and thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Why did you think you could be a filmmaker? Why did you want to be? Mm. I was coming of age in a time when media was being deployed and explored as a way to give voice to political movements of the time. So mm -hmm. that was the feminist movement, the second wave, right? Um, right. And disarmament movement, environmental movement. So there was this it felt like there was now this these tools called video cameras that were in the you know in the hands of the people mm -hmm. and that the editing systems were soon to follow that they, they would become democratized to the point where people could have access to them and it, there would and, be this wide audience yeah. who could be educated right yeah. could be exposed could be asked to think to be you know right. you know to to ask questions it could pose questions it couldn't necessarily deliver the answers, but it could always provoke the questions. Mm -hmm. Or it could show people in action. It could it could give lasting evidence. That was, I remember the title of an early festival that really touched me. Just let's make lasting evidence of X, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. that we marched here today, that we asked for this, that we fought for this. You yeah. Know? Did your world expand when you got to college? Or were you heading in that direction, so to speak? Were you politically aware? Were you savvy, even as a, you know, as a teenager? I was uh, savvy as a teenager a bit. Uh -huh. I think you couldn't help live in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. You know, Which is where you grew it, up? Yes. Mm -hmm. And not be aware that the Pentagon was in your area, that Washington had a lot going on. You know, you learn very basic things in civics, but they don't always mesh up. Mm -hmm. Coming of age, you know, being a child during Watergate, you know, <laughs> right. I, you know that, that, that shows you that the flag and the iconography of patriotism has to be, you know, you're even, you're seven and you have to <laughs> interrogate it a bit, you know. Vietnam yeah. was going to let you know that, that the just world theories that you're reading and stories have to be fact-checked with the, the way your country's behaving. Right. And then certain sadnesses that happen out of things you can't control or, or understand about the political world. Were your parents politically savvy and was that taught to you? They were on that very um, rocky cusp, cusp generation, uh -huh, yeah, uh -huh. where, where they, I think, were coming out of uh, 
50s innocence or 50s nebulousness right. and, and things were being thrust on them really quickly, uh-huh. I think, for both of them. And um, civil rights was something that um, became part of my father's life in terms of um, fair housing. Mm-hmm. And and then my mother was definitely – she was knowing that these books existed and she was reading them, mm-hmm. you know, Friedan and the rest. And the So you were exposed. So I was exposed. But they were learning. They were young, and they were learning. So in a way, along with you, along with yeah, and I was trailing behind. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh huh. And so then, when you left DC to go to Boston, another obviously big progressive city, it was a political bent for you in college, right? Absolutely. There was no way to study politics at a school like Brandeis and not be exposed to, right. you know, your first class is Marx and Freud or, you know, um, <laughs> right. and social justice mm-hmm. is sort of the lifeblood of the institution. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there were quite a few um, radical professors still, you know, still very much in full throttle at that time. And I was I was really exposed to progressive social justice thinking that had been you know, it's just as much, much a part of the American heritage as any other kind of... So it was resonating with you, know, you also, it was, right? It was. And I took a very uh, introductory class to documentary just for the hell of it. Mm-hmm. And I was overstimulated just to, to know that there was a way to show early marches and early protests, early labor. There was a way for uh, very important aspects of World War II to be covered, for the later wars, for, mm-hmm. for the 60s and 70s to be documented in depth. And for that history to come alive, I love that I could see what I had only read about. I think for me, documentaries as an extraordinary teaching tool of of the exposure. I have learned, even at my age now, so much by watching documentary films. It's almost embarrassing to state the obvious that way. We can feel weird to say that it's obvious, but also, mm-hmm. you know, to instill that in the next generation, the idea that long form, it's like a great long form article. In aggregate, you will learn diverse and nuanced things about the subject. Exactly. You know? So as a female and being exposed to the filmmaking world, what made you think you could do this? Mm. Well, I was living in the right city, <laughs> and the women of that time were in the position to launch the younger feminists. You know, mm-hmm. that the, I was living in a city where the idea of women pursuing things that are in their mind that are pressing and of interest was was the M.O. of the city. Right. Uh, with that many college students, with that many universities. And the fact that women were teaching younger women, you know, I felt like there was this wonderful period of mentorship. Support. Support, yeah. And I also, though my mother was not given that message, she absolutely gave me the message that I should Go it was, for it was it, never right? a question. It was never a question that, that I wouldn't pursue where my brain leads me. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so in spite of the fact, though, I mean, I don't mean to keep harping on being a woman in a man's world. Yes, there's the support of a, other women, but you're, it's still anomalous, isn't it? Back then it was, yeah, anyway. it is. It is. I think it was very cool that there was a side door, you know, that <laughs> I love. You didn't have to sort of just go out there and keep asking if you were allowed to. The side door was these these democratic implements, right? These instruments, the the, mm-hmm. the smaller camera. And the smaller camera enabled you to do what you wanted to do without having to ever seek anyone's permission. That's a good point. Yeah. You, you were free and to yes. yeah, be the chief cook and bottle washer. Yes. And so exactly. And so they, you know, that 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 t- t- term was really valid at the point, you know, that your camera's your weapon, you know, and you can <laughs> use it. 
So you become interested in documentary film, and then, as I mentioned, you took classes at Mass College of Art Studio for Interrelated Media, and that's where you really honed your craft? Well, I would say that's where I was exposed to experimental film, Ah. right? So in an art college, you were allowed to see whole other permutations of what it means to work in moving images and, mm-hmm. and how films might be put together, how video, how art video, installation art, um, agitprop, mm-hmm. uh, propaganda, you know, yeah. you, you can kind of expand the definitions of what it means to muck around with moving images and how you're going to put them together. Mm-hmm. So I like that for it was the mind opening of, of Mass College of Art. It was being in more of a, a salon of, you know, alternative thinking. And then to get the sort of more traditional craft that be, it became imperative to go to like a more traditional film school for that production a skill. la NYU. Yeah. yeah. So you're turned on. You know that a match is made for you, which is a really great thing. And you go to NYU and then you really hone your craft. Was it at that point that you felt that, yes, that you could be the director and that you could be the writer? Definitely. NYU's production program is designed to force each student to go through that process of trying all different roles within the filmmaking. And find your match. And find your match, absolutely. And and so it was, you know, I think as much as I liked camera operating and camera work, to specialize means to go really in depth in lenses and and a lot of gear. And, Mm -hmm. And while that interests me, it wasn't as interesting to me as being the observer, being you know, my practice is very observational. Mm -hmm. So therefore I know that's my skill set. My skill set is to observe, take notes, try to ask try to make a connection with who I film and then keep that going, keep that cycle, additional notes, additional observations and see and then also follow the narratives of, of that are lived by certain life models, people that I wanted to make portraits of. Did you assume back then that your genre would be documentaries? What was the transition point from that to feature filmmaking? So the transition is it's it's almost like a meeting ground instead of a transition. The okay. meeting ground is that I use documentary um, process to do my research, to film sketches and accumulate my notes, mm-hmm. and then those are organized in a narrative. Mm-hmm. And then even at the filming level, I do a blending of tradition of like very standard issue uh, fiction protocol mixed with some documentary elements, which would be sometimes filming real locations with the real people in them, filming a certain kind of on-the-go kind of coverage, which is less mechanistic in some ways than, okay. than mm-hmm. fiction techniques. So the, the meeting ground means that I use skill sets from both of these that That were easily styles, married, yeah. Yeah. in a yes. sense. And so at some point, I mean, not that you have to give one up for the other, because you simultaneously did both. Talk about Snake Feed, and then we'll work our way, you know, through your movies. That obviously was a seminal moment for you with the making of that film, correct? It was. It was. It was based on an assignment in film school at that time where, you know, we had a – previous to making that film, the assignments had been about observing people, Mm -hmm. about seeking out people that you didn't have prior connection with, asking permission if they – if you could find out a few things about their existence – that they would that they choose to tell you, mm-hmm. and I had a chance encounter that was very energetic with someone who was cleaning a, a bed and breakfast in upstate New York, and I started to ask her a few questions, and a, a large story unfolded. You know, when someone tells you I'm 21 days sober, uh-huh. you know that that's just like a cliffhanger. Uh, no kidding, you know, yeah. yeah. And I've got two kids, mm-hmm. you know. And next weekend is Easter. I don't know if you want to come back. You could meet my kids. So you know. So the story just started being. It started to go in these increments of 
meeting this real person, uh-huh. having her tell me a compelling core issue of her life, and then being able to observe how she was going to navigate and how she was navigating, how she was handling it, who her kids were, how they were processing it, what were the obstacles. And that's, for me, that's the grist of a very compelling story of everyday life. You well, know? clearly she felt comfortable and safe in telling you her story. I think she did. And I think, and she was also a storyteller. That's one of the big, you know, mm. that's one of the big gifts is mm-hmm. that as you do this journey, you can't really go further with someone who doesn't also want to take internal information from their existence and somehow express it to someone. They have to want to do that. And that that's called being a storyteller, when you can put words to something that you felt or thought about. So Snake Feed was a documentary. It was a very, what they call this hybrid, right? That The leads and the children were, they were the real family. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet we organized the scenes. We didn't shoot it live. It wasn't, right, you didn't follow so her around. Tuesday through yeah. Friday right. wasn't really Tuesday through Friday. It yeah. was, you know, it was that we said, Let's let's film this the scene first that builds up mm-hmm. that you told me about. Then let's then we'll skip a whole bunch of, of of things you told me, and we'll go right to the point where, uh, you know, your boyfriend got a, a dog that you didn't ask for, you know, mm-hmm. and then you guys can't afford to keep. And mm-hmm. then, um, and and we'll we'll go f- weeks later when the snake is very hungry, and you need to go. You know, your your young boys are saying, "Mom, the snake is hungry." You know? We have to feed the like, snake, right? So, yeah. like by this point in the story, everyone in the household is hungry. You know, mm. and <laughs> so, and how are you going to solve that and stay sober? So that we took the anecdotes and organized them and, and made the short film. Yes, and then at some point in your gut, did you think that that was going to be expanded? Did you assume there would be a down to the bone? I did not. I did not. I, you know, you. I think with films, you go so at that time in your life. I, I at least was going very incrementally. You know, at the end of that film, I was surprised it got some traction at, at a festival, that's several festivals, one of which has the ability, Sundance Festival, to then invite people to of expand course. their work or yes. to come come to their laboratories, Tremendous their workshops. Tremendous cred, yeah. Yeah, and so that was the invitation from Sundance. They were the first people that I think really opened the door to say, come on in. Validated, they, they, you mean? Validated, absolutely. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they said, you know, that's their practice. When they see a short film, they ask the filmmakers, do you have either additional story or do you want to continue this story? Would you want to expand it? Can it you know, do, do you imagine it could be a feature length? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, given that my notes were the size of a phone book <laughs> and that I had filmed so many hours with them, mm-hmm. It, you know, it was a no-brainer in a way. It was. It felt like it felt like a, a, a no-brainer. Act, yeah, maybe yeah, it did. Yes. Did that set you on your trajectory down to the bone? I think it did. I, you know, I, I knew what it was like for the first time to have a producing partner that my partner is called Anne Rosalini, and mm-hmm. she uh, was coming out of a different part of filmmaking world. She was coming out of programming of festivals, and you know, we. Tried to go, go through sort of traditional means to get the green light on this project. In terms and of funding? Funding. Yeah. Any been. larger entity wasn't going to happen. It uh-huh. just wasn't. And so we had a choice. You know, time, we had a choice either be dreary and wait and, and, and continue to ask, ask, or start it ourselves. And so we did it in the ultra, ultra low budget way. So that you and she paid for this film for all intents and purposes in the beginning? In the beginning, yeah. In wow. The be- well, it was also made for $200,000. So... Right, you know, so I mean, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm not saying that that's a small amount of money. I'm just trying to say, given no, that no, we no. weren't, we weren't trying to go get some, so we got a loan, right? You right. know, and we, and we, we also had a lot of people working at extremely I, humble rates, right? She and I were not making any 
uh, we were not making a living wage at that mm-hmm, time mm-hmm. from filmmaking pursuit. You know, we had to do other things to augment. It's not a tenable model. All it did was say we could at least take a very small camera, which was considered a, a consumer-grade camera. Our DP colleague, collaborator, knew how to get some prime lenses for a rinky-dink camera. So we had this jalopy of a device, <laughs> but it allowed us to go. Again, we didn't even have to go to a rental house. It was a way for us to say we're fi- we we want to endeavor this. We want to make this film, and we can't keep begging. Look what happened, as I said. You uh, won the Best Director Prize at 2004 Sundance Festival. That must have pushed you over the frickin' moon. It was, again, another kind of deep validation, and it was um, it was. Another big player in this film was the actress Vera Farmiga. Right, who I didn't who, neglected to mention. Who also was so instrumental in making the project work at this low-budget level. You know, at that point, she was someone who could garner much you know, better wages and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But she, want, she was from the region in which we were filming, and she wanted to be a full-blown collaborator. And so my dream world for filmmaking, and I don't know if this is very deterministically female, or but is that you know, what's good for one is good for all. So it was something where Vera had a very substantial role. She had a very, uh, a role that really expanded how people could see her as a performer and artist. And at the level at which she contributed and put her all into it at this very, at this very small budget tier, she also was for the first time fully visible as someone who had a lot of chops and Uh could do so much more than Mm -hmm. she had been asked to do in previous projects. And so that was, I think it was it was, it was a turning point for me to say that there's a way for a lot of people to grow together in filmmaking. And so then comes Winter's Bone a bunch of years later. And when I mentioned to people who I was having a conversation with, oh, my God, I saw that film. I loved it. You know, I mean, and it may be, you know, X amount of years old, but it doesn't matter. This had to be a major home run for you. Well, you know, you never know that when, you, when you're Obviously, setting out. But, right. you know, whenever a film can land... And get traction. And when you find out as a storyteller that there's a larger or more diverse group of people that are also engaged in the story, it's very encouraging. It's super stimulating. You're like, okay, I love to be in service to storytelling. And if you're if if I'm getting the response that people would like more work, I would love to provide (laughs) there for you. I'm there for (laughs) you. But I mean, there is a theme in your movies, Winter's Bone, that Jennifer Lawrence starred in. You know, she plays a teenager in the Ozarks, you know, very marginalized and compromised. Mother's kind of not very present. And the dad was, what, arrested for cooking meth. and Yeah, got very messed up in that whole scene. And then the family may be evicted. And you tell this poignant, powerful story. And you do the same with your newest movie, Leave No Trace. I want you to discuss that thread. I would say that I am intrinsically interested in people for whom there's not an easy map laid out. You know, I feel like in a big country such as ours, people get assigned different beats, you know, different, you know, I liken it to a huge national organization that's, you know, obviously also anarchic, but, you know, Mm -hmm. and... Many people are covering, you know, what we would call Dallas and 90210 and the idea of um, excessive wealth and bigness and fame, Mm -hmm. celebrity, money. That's covered very well in our filmmaking and certainly high stakes crime is covered very well and murder is covered very well. (laughs) Uh, Using, you know, using a lot of firearms is covered very well. Those are the topics and, and 
and ingredients that get a lot of coverage. And so I did feel that there were there was like sort of a call, a call for employment or a call for, you know, workers that are needed on the, on the, on some other themes. Mm-hmm. And I, I would say, you know, the lives of working people, the lives of people who are uh, considered poor, the lives of people who don't have a map that says, hey, here's here's the invitation. You know, you're you're entitled to go to college. You're entitled to earn a living wage. You know, that is not given out regularly, regularly <laughs> across our, again, really big country. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I see myself as someone who's drawn to try to work in that in that sector, if you mm-hmm. will, which would be the lives of everyday Americans. But within that, the stories are rich because they're, they are the stories of survival. Mm-hmm. And survival is intrinsically suspenseful. Mm-hmm. How is someone going to do it when it's not all given to them? <laughs> right, know? right. How are they going to withstand setbacks? How are they not going to become dreary of their life? How do they not get paralyzed by certain things? You know, it's not all about triumph and transcendence. It's about like literally nose to the grindstone, resilience. Mm-hmm. It's it's moxie. It's yep. it's smarts that um, maybe don't even come that don't come from books. It's 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 also what your family can and cannot give you. Well, it's survival. You know? Yeah. But at the same time, as I said earlier about documentaries educating you, feature films are also educating and exposing you, you know, to this vast population that we have out there that is so dismissed. And so you asked about, like, why would people be motivated to go to a film if you, yes. know, if, if, if you just, you know, the idea of American entertainment was based on the idea that no one wants to see the troubles. But that wasn't always true. In the 30s and after World War II, there were so many interesting filmmakers that tried to look at the lives of, of returning veterans from World War II that it, where it wasn't easy. It wasn't just John Huston, <laughs> you know, that was looking at the lives of people in the Dust Bowl or people that were working. It wasn't, you know, there were... There were slates of films King Vidor you know other mm-hmm, filmmakers mm-hmm. were looking mm-hmm. and then of course in the 70s too so there is a precedent for social realism in America you know we forget that oh, no and, I'm not saying you invented that by any no, stretch no no oh no but I'm just saying there, there's always been an appetite for it where entertainment doesn't have to be just either ultra violent or about glamour right know? or just silly yeah. you know that you're just going to go for the laughs yeah do you think by virtue of being female that you bring this extra or this different dynamic to these stories? I'm trying to figure this out right now because the discussion is getting really widespread and, and intricate about what it is that generates the disparity between how much output there is from women versus mm-hmm. men. And But I do think there's an issue about like, what kind of output, right? Mm-hmm. I think there's been a lot of years in which it was like, Hey, dime a dozen, make them, shoot them, make them, <laughs> uh-huh. shoot them up, make them more, you know. Right, assembly line. Th- th- there was just never even, uh, there was never like a quota on the death rate, you know, yeah. that, that that as entertainment, you know. Um, and bloodlust became kind of, we're kind of in a gladiator period where we're, where we're, we're very entertained by torture. It's, uh, we're, we're, we, we, we've forgotten about the woundable body of the other. And I, I think I was raised, I don't know if it's because I'm female or because I, was very interested in female scholars, but they really asked the question Questions. about, mm-hmm. they deconstructed the term collateral damage, put a face to it, mm-hmm. put a face to the woundable body of another human being. Right. And so those are things that I think, I think it is no, it is not an accident that I am born into a female body and that these things were brought to my attention and became very deeply internalized by me and are very important to me to this day. So it's almost you as know. if you could not not tell the story. I think that is true. I think that is true. So in talking about Leave No Trace, which is, and I'm going to use this word, a small film, 
Why did you make this film? Some of the things that are in that film are are heavy to think about or they cause a lot of questioning in the viewer. And there is, it's a very interactive film. You have to wonder a lot about yes, why you he does. Yes, you don't put it out there. Yeah. You know, I would say I, lo- I love to engage the viewer to try to also help put A to B to C, you know, and I th- I've gotten p- some positive feedback on that people genuinely enjoy. They don't need it to be all spelled out. The clues are dropped quite regularly about some, some of the dad's backstory, the father's backstory. He's a veteran and he... Uh, is actively managing PTS. He is actively managing a set of emotional and psychiatric, very fierce things that he no longer wants to take drugs to medicate, drugs that were prescribed to him from the VA. And he, however, has found a way to live that he can manage, that he can be systematic and consistent with in the raising of his daughter. And it is considered non-normative. It's non-conforming. It is to live undetected in a public park on the outskirts of Portland. And his daughter's a very important player in that. She's mm-hmm. become very adept. She's learned a lot from him. And she also is, in many ways, a protector of him. You know, she knows his vulnerability. She knows what it means for him to wake up with night terrors. She, the child is the, the child, father of the man, huh? In some part. Any child of a combat veteran will will have something extra that they need to contend with and Mm -hmm. they need to understand about this adult and what he or she is going through. And that was something that uh, interested me very much about the story as well. It's an adaptation of a novel from the region. Peter Rock is the novelist. The novel's called My Abandonment. And it was based, he based his novel or the inception of his novel was a small article he had read in the paper, the Oregonian, the paper of record Mm -hmm. for Portland. And it had described rangers discovering this father and daughter and they were surprised how long they had gone undetected. It was unusual. It was it was over years. And and their camp was also markedly different from other unhoused individuals that are from time to time found in public parks. Mm-hmm. Their home was had a, was a home. They had, you know, her books were there. Their sort of eating setup was was very identifiable and and it appeared that through later investigation of them she was on grade level, so homeschooling had been functional, and her health was good, and there was not – it was not – at that time, it was not deemed a situation – there was no knowledge of sexual abuse. And, right, you know, right. So the fact is they checked out okay. Yes. You know, but really what the author was working on was the wonderment of how they had gotten there, what their day-to-day life was like, and then after they're discovered, what will happen to them. I think that – what seems so normal to them is contrasted by who the hell lives like this. The intimacy of the film, there's no great dramatic, you know, explosion or whatever. It's what life is. He had his explosion in war. And then, yeah, this incredible intimacy. You feel very honored. Mm. Well, that's, that's, that's lovely to hear. And I think part of the intimacy is that two actors were able to immerse themselves in primitive skills training with a very a master of her art, which is a woman named Dr. Nicole Apellian. She's out of Portland, and she herself was able to survive for 45 days with two tools that she chose. So she's truly at the highest level of this um, skills set, which mm-hmm. is honoring and an investigation to what what sapiens sapiens knew, mm-hmm. you know, 10,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. Like fire skills were at a very high level at that point. The ability to find things in forest that when when it's not obvious, food to sustain you, 
water sources. They weren't living like at that level. They went. They also got food. This, the, the father and daughter got food from yes, the grocery into, store. Yes, yeah, they exactly. would go into a, a yeah. town. Yeah, uh-huh. absolutely. But the fact is that he had taken it upon himself with a combination of his, his military training and things that he then wanted to become versed in to augment, right, to, to have these skills at his disposal. And so the real, the actors, Ben and Tom, immersed themselves with Nicole and they learned, you know, she picked maybe five to seven things that they could accomplish in a short time, that they could do on screen, mm-hmm. that, that this father and daughter would absolutely know at this point. And so the intimacy is between the actors because they're doing these things for real. They're really uh, exchanging efforts to light a fire, to, to function in the woods. And then the second layer of intimacy is that the DP, Michael McDonough, is having a very good rapport with them. And they trust him. And he can get on his knees very close. And he can be right there at their fire and be like in their a, face. Quiet, a quiet, observant mm-hmm. member of mm-hmm. of their of their morning ritual or you know later in the day, whatever, or be in their tent with them. And... So I think that does contribute to a feeling that you that you are allowed to come close. It also contributes to have so many different reactions. Wow, what a love affair between this father and daughter. You know, the trust and the more than affection. Then what the hell is this? You know, I mean, she's a teenager. What is he doing to her? It speaks on so many different levels. First of all, there's no way that I could imagine ever doing this. And that's the one hand. On the other hand, I'm also a parent. You know, what the hell is going on? And I think that you cover so much ground in spite of the size of the movie. I think you're speaking about the and. The and that is the complicated, it's the almost the treasured tiny word of filmmaking, mm-hmm. that people can be something and something else, right? So that the things that he's imparting to her are really rich because they upend everything of, of traditional socialization. For sure. First and foremost, the distinguish, being able to distinguish between want and need or understanding or even grappling with that, even, even contemplating want versus need. You know, how little could I have and still be happy? What do I need to be happy? So the fact that he is actually providing a rare arena in which of of life in which she could even you know absorb that interrogate that be exposed to that is interesting but it's also arduous <laughs> it also keeps her isolated so there's a lot of ands oh god right. it's so multi-layered yeah. yeah and then her emancipation of course is right. something that she's going to achieve through her curious observant self she observes some of the communities that they end up crossing paths with mm-hmm. and develops a deeper sense of how she might want to proceed and the, and the ways in which she's different from her father mm-hmm. and the ways in which they may have to allow for those differences. That's right. And so the whole film is a series of us working with the discomfort of and, yeah. but it's also the charge of and. It's, it's, it's a very potent intellectual charge for us to be able to look at and. It's brave. <laughs> what was your feeling when the movie was over? Well, that's always hard because I'm so embedded in the construction of that ending or the, the – but I, you know, with some distance to it, I'm touched by kind of timeless things, which is that a very young person understanding the limits of what they can and cannot do vis-a-vis someone they love. You know, it's a very hard thing to learn, and that's so much about coming of age. And even the taking it to the next level that, that, you, that you may have to cleave yourself from a person that has been your primary guide and, and the person you've relied upon – and that the parent will also have to do the same. So mm. they're very, very universal themes there. But to watch them enacted stirs that in us, allows us to reflect on it. And 
I was very interested in, in the idea of what it takes to think your own thoughts in the digital era, how arduous that's become. So much is in our face, you and know. And to see him decline a cell phone is, makes him a freak. You know, <laughs> you know you just, right. could, how fast did that happen in our culture? Right, That right. to decline a cell phone would make you non-normative. Yeah. Yes, exactly. You know? And I love that he tries to ask that question, and she does too, you know, that it is really hard. You know, a scene that we cut that I loved was the first time she was exposed to another teen following somebody, you know, and, and just asking, what is following, you know? Oh and Gosh. why do we do and you know and this teen so happily saying oh yeah a hundred thousand of us follow this particular celebrity yeah. or, you know yeah and to think of a kid being clueless clueless or just still thinking your own thoughts how you we know. yearn for those she's not, days she's, yeah in some ways she's not clueless she's like she's clueless of the digital hyperconnectivity, but you know and to yeah. me none the worse for wear as far as i'm concerned <laughs> yeah but the process of making a movie must be exhausting and when it's said and done how do you unwind how do you know what the next movie is when do you want the next movie to come well you know you're always doing i think you're you're usually doing two so in the time that it was taking to make leave no trace you don't sit idle you know uh, and we started a documentary that actually was that sprung from a narrative script where the narrative wasn't sufficient to go into the nuance. We had to go into documentary to mm. actually show the and. Mm-hmm. You know, the narrative was tied up too tight. It was too pat. And so the and was much more true to the subject. And so we're deep in that. We're three years into that. And filming. what is that? And that's a story of some of, of men and, and women in the New York area building their life back after incarceration. That's looking at oh, okay. what it takes to reenter and mm-hmm. the ways in which we actually don't want to allow people back. In. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. so that's, you know, mass incarceration is a very major topic that journalists, filmmakers, writers from all all the arenas of, of trying to tell stories are looking at. And this was one of those stories that, that really stuck to us. And so we're trying to finish that. And that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's, it's, it's, that's, it's hard because it's too multivalent. You know, it's, it's, a, it's an essay film in that sense. And that's always a struggle because it's hard to shape. I want to ask this question that's bothered me for a long time in terms of documentaries. Their exposure sometimes is so limited when they're such powerful tools. Yeah. I don't want to end on a negative note, but does that not make you crazy? Yeah, I mean, but let's they, look at the bright side. RBG. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ruth Bader's. I, I, I saw that recently, and, and boy, was that an emotional experience. I'm crying watching this movie. Yes, but that's that's it's doing well at the box office. <laughs> yes, but it's exceptions rather than yeah. a rule, don't yeah. you think? Yes, it is. And you know, I think for some documentaries, that's that's where streaming can be powerful. That's you a know, good point. I, I, I'm I'm really going to proceed cautiously here because. I still want the streaming captains, the the big CEOs, the big honchos, the the, the mega wielders, the, the the streaming oligarchs. I want them to sign emotionally a non-aggression treaty with with <laughs> with exhibited cinema. I want mm-hmm. them to stop bullying. You know, it's, it means a lot to me and every other filmmaker to not have them foreclose the option of the big screen and and communal viewing and not not to wage war against it. However, for certain documentaries. You know, Generation Wealth, I was on a panel recently with with Lauren Greenfield, who made that film, and she mentioned that, you know, 100 million people are expected to see that through the Amazon streaming release. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of people. No kidding. That's, yeah. Okay, so there are places, documentaries about about race and, and issues of education and access and mass incarceration. You want big audiences. Streaming is a very good option. Doesn't mean that some of those documentaries don't also majorly beautifully benefit from large screen exposure part of documentaries that's so rich is that there's a lot of visual and anthropology involved 
Exactly. Real people's lives, real yep. American cities, yep. real housing, mm-hmm. you know. And so to see that on a big screen is, is, is magnificent. Right. So I don't want to only say they should be shunted to streaming. I'm just saying that's one option for wider viewership, which right. I appreciate. That's a great way to end. Thank you so much for having a conversation with me, Deborah. You're so welcome. I enjoyed it very It much. was just terrific. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.